Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade, Wednesday, January 15th, 2014. That's right, it's the Ides of January. Does that count as Shakespearean humor? (laughs) Probably not. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy and bizarre things being said about God, and all of it's needless. The reason why is because so much of it is cleared up if you just add a wee bit of context. And in fact, that's the idea. Listen, folks, when we're dealing with God's Word, we must see it for what it is. It is actual revelation from God himself. It has his authority uh, and name and everything you know that goes along with the fact that it has its origin from God. All of that goes into it. And so the last thing you want to be doing is sitting under somebody who is twisting God's word, making it say things it doesn't say, and creating commandments that are supposedly coming from God to us uh, when they're not actually coming from God. And, you know, you you get what I'm saying here. I seem to have confused myself. Now, once a week, we do what we call a light episode here at Fighting for the Faith. And that does not mean that the topic is light. What it means is is that we're we're dealing with a singular topic. And we have been working our way through a series of uh, lectures on the basics of Christianity, Christianity 101, by Pastor Ernie Lassman of Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington. And uh, we are now up to the next lecture today. We just finished his little two-part mini-series on the Ten Commandments, and now we've got another two-part mini-series that we'll be listening to. And the two-part mini-series is on the doctrine of Christ. It's this is about Jesus. So these are Christological um, lectures, uh, you know, regarding the basics of Christianity and Jesus. And so. You know, they're in two parts. So without further ado, here is Pastor Ernie Lassman and part one of his two-part series uh, that he's going to do within the bigger series of Christianity 101 on Jesus. Here we go. 
Why don't we uh, change gears then? We have some wonderful things to get to tonight. Our very first complete full lesson on Jesus Christ. And um, we start out with something very obvious and simple. Christianity. Obviously, Christianity is about Christ. And what we're going to do tonight are two basic things. We're going to talk about who is this Jesus Christ. Well, that'll get a lot of arguments going. And we're going to look at the Bible and we'll see who is this Jesus Christ. And secondly, we're going to look at what he did in his life and death. Then next week, We'll have Jesus Christ part two, where we'll talk about his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, and his sitting at God's right hand, and what all that means. But just tonight, who he is, what did he do in his life and death? Okay? So, let's look at question number one, page 26. Because we want to know him, we now focus our attention directly on Jesus Christ. Why is he called Jesus. You might want to circle that, underline it, or highlight it. Now, maybe that's a slam dunk for you, easy. But I know as a child, you know how children are always coming up with questions. What would you say if your child asked you, why is he called Jesus? As I sometimes jokingly say, why didn't they name him Bob or Fred or even some other biblical name like Moses or Aaron. Why was he named Jesus? Because you might remember Mary and Joseph did not name their baby. God named their baby through an angel. So our very first question is, okay, why Jesus? Okay, that's what we'll look at. So in our, our text again, Matthew 1, 21, this is the angel Gabriel talking to Joseph. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, would you circle the little word for after the word Jesus? Now, you know, sometimes the word for can also be translated because. Okay? Thou shalt name, call his name Jesus. Why? Because he shall save his people from their sins. Now, you got a hint there, right? But now you need to know a little bit about the name Jesus. Okay? Jesus. Jesus is the New Testament name. And what language, for those who already know or been with us, what language was the New Testament written in? Greek. Jesus is the New Testament Greek name. For the Old Testament name, which is in Hebrew... Joshua. Jesus and Joshua are the same name. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. Now we're getting real close to the explanation. The word Joshua means Yahweh saves. So this child is going to be called Jesus because this is the way God will save people from their Sins. Now, for those who have been with us, this is all in fulfillment, as we see, of the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. Right? 
God will save all humanity in this one human being called Jesus. In other words, this man Jesus will literally live up to the meaning of his name. You know, sometimes moms and dads go through baby books, you know, looking for a name that fits or something. Generally speaking, generally speaking, might be exceptions. You know, it doesn't take long to forget the meaning of that name. And number two, most other people don't know the meaning of the name, probably. And and we don't want to hear this, but they probably don't care either. But in the Bible days, oh, names spoke volumes. The name of someone told you something about that person, where they were born, what they were like or something. And so in Jesus' day, names were far, far, far more important. And so that's why he's given this name, because this will be the man God will use to save people. As we see in our next Bible passage, Acts 4, 12. This is the great apostle Peter speaking after Pentecost. He says, there is salvation. And remember, salvation always means from sin, Death, the devil, and damnation. Sin, death, the devil, and damnation. There is salvation in no one else. He's talking about Jesus. For there's no other what? There's no other name than Jesus under heaven, given among the human race by which we must be saved. And then the last one under number one is John four forty-two. Where it says, we know that this is indeed the Savior of what? The world. Not just the Savior of the Jews. Savior of the world. Now let's do this real quick, especially those who have been with me. But remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were given three promises. Many descendants that have their own land. And from those descendants and on that land would come the Savior of the whole world. All nations. Okay. So, our, our, our first simple point is, from this we learn, he's called Jesus, because he's the Savior, the only Savior of all mankind, because his name means Yahweh, or God saves. Okay, any question on the name Jesus, then? That's why he's named Jesus, and not Bob, or some other name. Well, the next one's kind of interesting, too. Why is Jesus called Christ? Would you highlight the word Christ? And then, after the word Christ, with your pen or pencil or whatever, write the word Messiah. M-E-S-S-I-A-H. Well, that's the name of this church, isn't it? Okay, now what we're going to learn here, and we'll look at the Bible passage. Christ. Christ is the New Testament Greek word for Messiah in the Old Testament and the Hebrew. Okay? Just like Jesus and Joshua, same name, one's in Greek, one's in Hebrew. Same with Christ and Messiah. Christ is the New Testament Greek, Messiah is the Old Testament Hebrew. Okay? And they both mean. The anointed one. So the, 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 the word Christ is not a name. His name is Jesus. Christ or Messiah is a title. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus, 
the anointed one. Now, I'm going to give you more information in a minute, but let me just fast forward. Uh, By anointed one, it means the equivalent of Jesus, the appointed one or chosen one. Appointed or chosen or anointed one for what? To be the savior of the world. Anointed, appointed, chosen by whom? God. So Jesus Christ is Jesus, the chosen one, to be the savior of the world, the anointed one, the appointed one. So it's a title. Um, Now, what's interesting, uh, just I throw in these things, no extra charge. This is what his name looks like, or the title, excuse me, not name, his title in Greek. That's pronounced Christus. And what I want to show you here, you see that little thing right there? What does it look like in, in English? Looks like an X, doesn't it? Okay, you ready? Here it comes. You ever see this around the time of the holidays? Are you with me? They really didn't take Christ out of Christmas, did they? That X is not an X. That came in the 16th century with Christians, and we all write in shorthand, right? Christians would often write in shorthand in the 16th century and put, that's called a chi in Greek. Well, it got passed down, and secularists, non-religious people, just thought it was a X. So they really didn't take Christ out of Christmas. And the reason I always say this, not only because it's interesting, but next Christmas, when you see an Xmas, you can witness to Christ now. You can say something. To, you know why? You know what that X is? You can tell them. And that they didn't take Christ out of Christmas. Okay, well, let's look at a, a, a passage here that help you out here a little bit. Now, I'm, I've got to move on. I'm watching the clock already. Acts 10.38 says, uh, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Spirit, and with power. Do you highlight the word anointed? Now, I know you can't see the word Christ there, but this is, here you see the word Christus. This is his name. For anointed, this is what the word looks like in Greek. And you see the same thing here, right? Creo. So, uh, this is the verb form. This is the verb form of the noun Christ. He is the anointed one. And this took place, by the way, if you want to write this down, uh, this took place at his baptism. Remember? Remember when, if you were with me uh, so far, the baptism of Jesus is the beginning of his public ministry. And who came down on him in the form of a dove at his baptism? The Holy Spirit. Okay. So, at his if you're used to the idea of installing somebody into an office, you know, like the president, vice president, or we do have pastors too and things like that, Jesus was publicly installed as his office as the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world at his baptism. Yeah, that's what that means. Now, let me give you a little hint here and then we've got to move on. So I'm watching the time. There's a historical background on this in the Old Testament. Because they often anointed or installed certain officials in the Old Testament. And you can write this down. Prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed into their office. And I'll give you three Bible passages. You can look up on your own for all those that are troopers that look up all these Bible passages. You can see how they're installed into their office. So Leviticus 4, 5, and 16. Another one, you'll see this, is 1 Samuel 16, 13. And the last one you can look up, and there's many others, but these will just give you an overview. 1 Chronicles 14, 8. 
So, uh, this is where Jesus too then is anointed or chosen and put into his office as the Savior of the world. So now you know the name Jesus, where that comes from, and why it's called Jesus and not something else. And now you know the word Christ is not a name, but a title. And that's why in the New Testament you'll see him referred to as Jesus, or Christ, or Jesus Christ, or even Christ Jesus. Now, the word order doesn't matter. They didn't have last names in those days. Uh, so they cut Jesus of Nazareth distinguished him from Jesus of, uh, you know, Tacoma <laughs> or something like that. Or Jesus the carpenter in contrast to Jesus the, see, so they didn't have last names. Yeah. Yes, uh, please. Prophet, king, uh, a Prophet, priest, and kings. Yeah, prophet, priest. And by the way, thanks for reminding me. When we look at the New Testament, this is so awesome. We don't have time to do this. I just can't do everything in these classes. But what's interesting, when you look at the New Testament, Jesus is described and called prophet, priest, and king. So he fulfills all three offices from the Old Testament. Yeah. Okay. Um, Let's go to number three. Again, I'm watching the clock, so forgive me. Why do we believe that Jesus Christ is God? Oh, boy. Here's where you start separating, separating out Christians from those who are not. Um, and we're going to do this in several parts here. Uh, many people who are not Christians, usually, usually reasonable people, will say, you know, Jesus was a, a remarkable man, or a, a really a remarkable person, and he said lots of good things that are worth listening to, you know, like love other people and things like that. But he's not God. See? But we Christians think he's God. Okay? Now, let me show you where we're going with this. And for those who have been with me, uh, let's see, where's my chalk? Oh, here it is. Um, and you've seen this before, and we'll do this over and over again, so you know what we're doing. Remember when we talked about God, we talked about God as triune, right? This is just an illustration. It's imperfect. It's the best we can do. With the triune God. But we talked about God as Father. God as Son. Also called the Word. And God the Holy Spirit. Okay. Well, what we've already hinted at in previous lessons. And we'll look at a little bit more tonight. Who is this Jesus Christ? He is the second person of the triune God. Who remembers not one third God. But he's all God. Not one third God. Not part God. He is God. came into the world as man, we know Jesus. And I'm going to talk more about this as we go along tonight. That's what Christmas is all about. Okay, okay so let's look at a few things, and we'll be doing this in uh, points um, 3 and 4 and 5. So number 3, question 3. Why do we believe that Jesus Christ is God? Well, first of all, 1 John 5.20, and let's look it up in context. Because context is important. I want you to see what precedes this. And it's 1 John 5 and verse 20. So it's the very end there. The Apostle John says, We know also the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Now it's very clear in the Greek, but you can also see it in the English. Okay. You see that where it says he's true God and eternal life? Okay. What I want you to see in the context, that pronoun he refers back to Jesus Christ. See that? So, even his son, Jesus Christ, he's the true God and eternal life. Who's the true God and eternal life? 
His Son, Jesus Christ. Okay, um, let's look back in our green booklets, because we have lots more to do. John 20, 28. I'll read it, then I'm going to explain it. Some of you may already know this passage, others may not. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Now here's the context. This took place after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And Jesus on one time appeared in an upper room with the door shut and locked right in the midst of his disciples. He just materialized. And tonight and next week I'll tell you how he did that. But he just materialized right in the room and they saw truly he is alive. One problem, Thomas wasn't there. So Jesus disappears again. And Thomas shows up, and the apostles say, you know what? Those women weren't crazy. He really is alive. And Thomas said, "Mm mm-hmm, sure. And you might know this story. He said, I'm not going to believe unless what? I see him, and I touch him, then I'll believe. A week later, a week later, the apostles all gathered in the upper room. The door shut and locked, and we're told why? For fear of the Jews, because they thought, they got Jesus. Who are they coming after next? Us. So the door shut and locked. Jesus just materializes in the room. He walks over to Thomas. Now, put yourself in Thomas's shoes about right now. Okay. okay. And Jesus approaches him and says, Thomas, and he says, why didn't you believe, etc., etc., etc. Here, put your hand here. Put your hand here and everything. Now, this is when Thomas answers. It does not say it in the biblical text. I'm going to repeat that. It does not say it in the biblical text. Personally speaking, personal opinion. I think Thomas was on his knees when he said these words. He was on his knees. That's my personal opinion. But what does he say to Jesus? He says, what? My Lord and my what? Ah, now, context is everything. Who is this Thomas? He's a Jew, a devout Jew, who knows the Ten Commandments. And what's the first commandment? Do not have any other gods before me. And what is he calling this man? My Lord and my what? See? So here's a good Jew, and he's not going to call this man God unless he has reason to believe that he's God in human form. Are you with me? Yeah, this is not some pagan or, or mystery. This is a good Jewish boy who knew the Ten Commandments. And he's calling this man God, my Lord and my God, he says to him. Okay, let's look up the next one. Uh, it gets in your green book, but I want to look it up in the context. So would you look up the Gospel of John? Not First John, that's way at the back. The Gospel of John, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now that's not going to make any sense to you at all. If you'll all look up here just for a minute, please. We're back to the Trinity. It's like you read that and you go, say what? You know? okay, now look up here and watch this though. In the beginning was the Word, right? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the mystery of the Trinity, right? Now go to verse 14. Verse 14. The Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we see here. The Word who is with God and the Word who is God became a human being, one of us, and dwelt among us for 33 years. Okay, uh, let's go. Um, 
Again, I want to show you the context. Would you look up the Romans passage? Romans 9. And we'll start at verse 4. Do 4 and 5. So Romans 9, 4 and 5. Theirs, he's talking about Israel. You see that the Jews. Theirs is the adoption of sons. In other words, they were the chosen people. Theirs is the divine glory. Theirs is the covenant, meaning with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. Okay? Receiving of the law, that's Moses, Ten Commandments, the temple worship, and the what? The promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, etc. And from there is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is? You get that? So he has a human ancestry. Remember, because we said the seed of the woman would come down to one tribe, the tribe of Judah, and one family in the tribe of Judah, King David, that's his human ancestry. But he's not only has a human ancestry, but he is God. And of course, he got his human ancestry from his mother. We'll talk about the virgin birth uh, momentarily. Now, from this we learn, we believe that Jesus Christ is God. But I'm not done, because I want to give you some more passages, then we'll move on to number four. So where it says, from this we learn, would you write down these Bible passages? We'll do them quickly. Because this teaching that Jesus is God is not in some just few isolated passages. It's all over the place. So here's the passages. John 5.18. The next one is Philippians. You can abbreviate it Phil if you want. Philippians 2.6. And then we're going to have two in Colossians. Colossians, that'd be C-O-L. 1.19 and Two, nine. Well, let's look these up very quickly. Again, see what this says about Jesus being God. And then we'll have more to say in point four. John 5.18. And we'll start at 16. Put a little context. So, 5.16. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Verse 17. Jesus said to them, My father's always at his work to this very day. I too am working. I don't know if you understand that, and that's not my main point here, but we'll make it anyway. What he's saying is, whatever the father does, I do. Yes, please. Then Jesus himself said to uh, Philip, if I remember correctly, yeah. If you see me, you see the Father, yeah. I am the Father of one. Oh, are you, so. What's the matter with you, Philip? Aren't you getting this yet? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, there's many passages we can look at. I just, I just select some, but you're absolutely right. So then, verse 18 is sort of the punchline. Here's the punchline. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Why? Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal. Now, see, now Thomas, Thomas called Jesus my Lord and my... God, because he believed Jesus was God in human form. Ah, somebody explained to me then why the Jews here wanted to kill Jesus because he was making himself equal to God. I mean, I gave you the answer earlier. Because Jesus was breaking the first commandment, and obviously they didn't believe that Jesus was God in human form. You see, that's why they have the different responses. Thomas believed Jesus was God in human form. Therefore, he could call Jesus God without breaking the first commandment. The unbelieving Jews did not believe Jesus was God in human form. And therefore, that meant he was breaking the first commandment. And according to Jewish law, he was committing blasphemy. And according to Jewish law, he should be stoned to death. So you see, the first commandment all comes down, is Jesus God in human form? Or not? 
Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, here's the other one. Philippians. Let's read five. Philippians two, five, and six. Your attitude should be that of the, that uh, the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature what God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And I'll explain that to you later. I'll explain that to you later. I promise. I just want you to see right now. It says Jesus Christ was in very nature God. Okay, let's go to the Colossians one where we have uh, two passages. What do we read in Colossians 1, 19? We read, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Jesus. All the fullness of God to dwell in Jesus. And go over to chapter 2, we'll see something very similar. Paul doesn't say it once but twice. 2, 9. Colossians 2, 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the Deity, that's God, lives in bodily form. Just like in John's Gospel, the Word became flesh. God became man. This is the mystery of Christmas and Christianity. All right, we're going to pause right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's lecture on Jesus Christ by Pastor Ernie Lastman. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We will be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Siri, what are the chances of hearing Rick Warren actually rightly handle and correctly teach God's Word? That will take some serious number crunching in order to figure out. I'm not a cray supercomputer. I'm just an iPhone. Are you sure you want me to calculate that? Yes, I'd like you to try to calculate that. Okay, I'll give it my best shot. Calculating. 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 Ouch, my processor chip hurts. Calculating. Calculating. Okay, I think I've got the answer. Here you go. There is a better chance that Harold Camping will predict the end of the world than there is of you hearing the Bible rightly taught by Rick Warren. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. 
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if you're not getting this kind of in-depth teaching from your pastor. Yeah, it just skips along the surface, ripping verses out of context. Yeah, and that'll make you dissatisfied. All right, just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, right there, you can't miss it. There's like two friendly yellow buttons. One of them says donate. The other says join our crew. They're actually, they occur several times throughout the, uh, the pages they're fighting for the faith didn't want you to miss them but uh you know when you click on the join our crew button you're signing up to automatically contribute eight dollars 95 cents every month that's it just 8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of fighting for the faith and pirate christian radio and it is a great way to support us and of course if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 and let me thank you for your support we cannot do what we are doing here without it okay here is the balance of today's lecture on jesus christ uh, part one by pastor ernie lastman here we go okay uh let's go on then uh to number four because there's other reasons there's other reasons we believe that jesus is god too John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, okay? And we already saw that part of that passage, but after that, would you write in parentheses, eternal? And you'll see my point in just a minute, right? Eternal. Because it's the Word that becomes what? Flesh. Hebrews 13, 8, that's the next Bible passage, says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And after that, would you put in parentheses, if you can fit it in there, Unchanging. Unchanging. Matthew 28, 20, and we'll come back to this passage uh, several times in the future. This is Jesus after his resurrection and before he ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father, which we'll explain next week. He says to them, Lo, I am, and you might want to highlight, with you always, even to the end of the world. And that is, if you, want to, if you can squeeze it in there, either write omnipresent or present everywhere. Either way you want to do it, omnipresent or present everywhere. John 21, 17, this is Peter speaking. 
And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, thou knowest, you might want to highlight, all things. And if you want the big fancy word, you can write omniscient or all-knowing. All-knowing. And then the last one with the letter A, it's Matthew 28, 18. Again, right before his ascension into heaven, you can highlight the word power. All power is given unto me. Where? In heaven. And by the way, in heaven means the dwelling of God everywhere. And where? On earth. So you can put all powerful or omnipotent, omnipotent. Now, what I want you to do... And you'll see the point there. What what is this all about? What we just saw there is Jesus is given certain qualities that only God has. Therefore, if Jesus has the qualities of God, who is He? He's God. And so what you can do with those passages that have, you know, the A's like this, that's what you had, put a little bracket and put qualities of God. Qualities of God. In other words, he's not only called God, but he has certain qualities that only God has. For example, he knows everything. Well, who alone knows everything? Only God knows everything. Okay, now we'll do something else with number four as well. Let's go to the ones you can see they're labeled B. First one is John 1, 3. All things were made by him. You might want to highlight made by him. And then in parentheses put creator. Creator. Hebrews 1.3, he upholds, might want to highlight the word upholds, he upholds the universe by his word of power. And you can put in parentheses something like preservation. In other words, God created the world and he preserves it. And now we're told Jesus created the world and preserves it. Top of the next page, Matthew 9.6. This is Jesus speaking. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, has power on earth to highlight forgive sins. And maybe in parentheses put in the word forgiveness. And of course, you know who alone can forgive sins? Only God. But Jesus forgives sins. Therefore, he must be God. And finally, John 5, 27. This is Jesus speaking. The Father has given him authority to execute judgment. People say God will judge the world on the judgment day. That's true. But Jesus will judge the world on judgment day because Jesus is God in human form. And there's lots of passages that say that. So so those last passages, you kind of have to divide it up a little bit from the bottom. Kind of do on your, your bottom page, you know, down here, and then go up to your next page up here. And what you want to write down in, that, in those brackets are the works of God. In other words, certain things are told of Jesus that he does, that only God can do. So thus far, we've made three points about Jesus being God. He's called God. He has certain qualities or attributes or characteristics that only God has. And number three, what we just looked at is he does certain works and activities that only God does. Okay, so that's what you see. From this we learn, the scriptures tell us that uh, Jesus Christ has the qualities of God, and B performs the works of God. Now, number five is the punchline. If this is all true, what do the scriptures tell all people to do? John 5, 23, and this is Jesus speaking, 
All men, and notice the word all, not just Jews, not just Christians, all people should honor the Son, and we just circle or highlight the little words, uh, as, even as, even as, they honor the Father. Now, did you get that? He says, what kind of honor are you to give Jesus Christ? The same kind of honor you give to God the... Whoa, that's first commandment again, isn't it? If, he, if this is not true, we're baking, breaking the most important commandment of all, aren't we? But if it is true, then the only way we can keep the first commandment is by having a relationship with Jesus Christ, who's God in human form. Now, let's write down to, sh- to emphasize this to show you that this is so important. Because God does not share His honor and glory. That's what I want to show you. Two passages in Isaiah. There'll be two of them. Isaiah 42, 8. So chapter 42, verse 8. And something very similar. Chapter 48, verse 11. So 42, 8. And what do we read? This is God, of course, speaking to the prophet Isaiah. I am the Lord. That is my name. And what does he say? I will not give my glory to another. And yet what does Jesus say? You got to honor me just like you do the Father. Well, if that's not true, right? Because he says he won't share his honor and glory with anybody else. That's the same thing. Let's just see it's done again in chapter 48, verse 11. Something very similar just repeats itself to make the point. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Well, you already know the concept, don't you? We looked at 42 and 48, but it's all about, isn't that what the first commandment's all about? Have no other gods before me? It means he didn't want to share his glory with anyone or anything. But Jesus says, you are to honor me as you honor the Father because I am God in human form. To honor me is to honor the Father. To honor me is to honor God. Now look at in our green booklet again. Let's go back to our green booklet. Philippians 2, 10, 11. It's right in your green booklet. At the name of Jesus, every knee should what? Wow. Now if you, make sure you get this. To bow before Jesus is a sign of worship. We're to worship Jesus. Well, it's the first commandment again, isn't it? Have no other gods before me? We are to bow before Jesus. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, now I'm going to give you a real quick lesson here, and I hope it's meaningful to you because we can't do a lot with it tonight. It'd be too much work. Uh, but you know the name Yahweh in the Old Testament, right? Yeah. Did you ever notice the name Yahweh doesn't show up in the New Testament? Yeah, it doesn't show up in the New Testament. And there's a real simple illustra- reason for that. It actually does show up, and you just don't know it. Okay? When it says Jesus Christ is Lord, it's meaning Jesus Christ is Yahweh. And here's how it happened. You had the name Yahweh, which is the personal name of God in, of Israel in the Old Testament. God's the generic name, Elohim. Yahweh is the specific God of, the specific Elohim of Israel. Yahweh, okay, Jehovah. And uh, what happened was, as the years went by, particularly when the Old Testament was completed around 450 B.C., okay, the name Yahweh was so sacred to the Jews, they would never say it out Loud. It was so sacred. So whenever they came to the public reading of the scriptures, you know, if, I think most churches do this, but if you've been to our church, you know, we publicly read the scriptures. That's an old ancient custom. The Jews did that. They read the scriptures in church, just like 
Christians do. But whenever they publicly read the scriptures and came in the Hebrew text to the word Yahweh, they wouldn't say it. They said the Hebrew word for Lord, which is, and some of you may know this word, it's Adonai. Adonai. Well, what happened then is the Hebrew Old Testament, about uh, 200 years before Jesus approximately, was translated into Greek. Remember, Greek is the international language of the day at that time. And a lot of Jewish people couldn't read Hebrew anymore. So they had to translate it into Greek. And whenever the Hebrew scholars came to the Hebrew word Yahweh, they translated it as, we have to go to Greek now, but it's curious, Lord. Well, that came right into the New Testament. So when it says Jesus is Lord, it means more than Jesus is boss. It means Jesus is God. That's why we bow down to him. Yes, please, George. Uh, actually, if I might, uh, Philippians 2, 10 11 uh, is uh, not proof, but suggestive of your suspicion. Thomas is on his knees in the upper room, given the context. Of yeah, I see what you mean. Exactly, yeah, by implication. I understand. And we're going to look at the whole passage uh, a little bit later to make some other points. But you're right. The implication is strong, isn't it? Yes. Okay. Um, so, all, all, here's what we look. All should honor and worship Jesus Christ as God. Now, I don't have time to do this in class, unfortunately. But that's why I passed this out. These are ancient, erroneous views of Jesus. <coughs> and modern, erroneous views of Jesus. And I'll just let you read those on your own. And if next week... You've read this, and during the review, you have some questions. Please feel free uh, to bring bring that up. But I can't uh, I can't dwell on it uh, tonight. But you can kind of uh, uh, see that on your own, and then we'll maybe do some more during the review if you have specific uh, <coughs> questions. Real quickly, though, what I will say is Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, and Unitarians are not considered Christian churches by Christian churches. And for a variety of reasons. First of all, they deny the triune God. I don't know if you know that. They deny the triune God. And they do not believe that Jesus Christ is God in the way that I just told you. So there's lots of issues and problems with that. And you can read about that a little bit on your chart. And maybe during the review next week, uh, we can bring up some specific uh, questions about that. Okay, well let's go to number six then. What miraculous event occurred in the central moment of history? And you can write down the word Christmas. Boy, how the world would be different if we didn't have a Christmas. Matter of fact, I preached on that this last Christmas Eve. Anybody here familiar with the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Okay. I used that as an illustration of my Christmas Eve sermon. Okay. You know, because the story in The Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart thinks his life's horrible. And he wished he'd never been born. And so Clarence the angel gives him his wish, right? And he sees what life would have been like if he had never been born. And it's disastrous, isn't it? If he hadn't been born, there was all sorts of negative consequences. And that's where he finally, when the movie's all over with, he sees after all, despite all the problems in life and everything, ultimately, it's still a wonderful life. Now here's what I kind of made the point out on Christmas Eve. Okay, Jimmy Stewart says, okay, Jimmy Stewart, or what was his name? Um, George Bailey. Yep, you no longer live. Think if there is no Christmas. Jesus Christ was never born. There is no Christmas. 
So where do you put your hope now? There is no Christian church, because it can't be a Christian church if there's no Jesus, right? Think about that maybe when you go home tonight or laying in bed. How would your life or the world be different if there was no Jesus Christ and no Christian church? Wow. Right? Yes, please, then over here. Well, I mean, wouldn't we still be under the law then? Yes, we would. That's my point. We'd be under the law. Sacrificing. Right? Yeah, so that's right. So we'd either be uh, still pagans and everything, or we'd be self-righteous, or we'd be in utter despair, wouldn't we? You're right. We'd be under the law. There would be no gospel. And I'm so glad we're not under the old death law. Yeah. You know, I, I, I mean, I hate to see... Well, but yeah, I understand that. I thought you were going to go a different direction with all the burdensome laws and everything. No, I understand your point, and I feel that way too. But you know what we have to remember, and I think I'm saying in some sermon someplace that's coming down the road, they all mix together after a while. But you know, that's what the cross is all about. We've kind of purdied up the cross. That was bloody. That was just as bloody as what happened in the temple with the lambs and goats. We don't want to forget that. We've turned, uh, we've turned the cross into a pretty piece of jewelry, a nice ecclesiastical art, but it was a bloody symbol. That's right. That's kind of what Steve's point too is. No, exactly. See, for example, that's my point. If there is no Jesus Christ and no Christian church, what is the meaning of life? Yeah, exactly. What right, right there? What year would it be? Yeah, and you're now you're facing death. Where do you put your hope? What's going to happen in death? You know, I mean, do you see? I mean, I, and I know people would have some people would have certain answers, but you understand my point. How profoundly different life would be if there was no Jesus Christ and no Christian church. Where do you stand on Christ? You know, but I say this to say that there are actually pastors and ministers and other clergy who actually. Believe in the triune God uh-huh. yep. that actually teach people not to honor Christmas. You know, you need to have the true meaning. The, you know, the, you need to have that whole picture of what Christmas really is, purpose and everything. Yeah. But you know, to, to suggest that folk don't celebrate. No. To me, my, my my position, I would believe, would be probably mainline Christianity to avoid extremes. On the one hand, we don't want to celebrate Christmas as as Christians without Jesus. On the other hand, we don't want to go to the extreme like some radicals and say, no, you can't have Christmas. So so it's an in-between that we can celebrate Christmas as long as we know the difference between secular celebration and spiritual and what the real meaning is. Purpose. That's the purpose of it. Yeah. yeah, and then I got to move on, Steve. When I read the Bible about Christmas, it doesn't it, it doesn't make it clear it's, in, it's before December. You oh yeah, no, that's what I say. Yeah, that's not in the Bible. December twenty fifth yeah, is not in the Bible. No. Yeah, so but, it's Christian freedom. Yeah, that's what I say. But it is freedom. Yeah, it's just like yeah. Well, it's just like some people, like Jehovah's Witness, say, you know, well, you can't celebrate the Lord's Day. Well, who says? Yeah. See, so this, there's certain Christian freedom here that a lot, of, a lot of Christian folks don't know about. We have a lot of freedom. Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, let's go to number six then, Christmas. We talked about. And here we get into a wonderful thing that you either believe it or you don't because there's no way you're going to prove it. The virgin birth. Luke 1, 35. This is the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary, the mother of Jesus. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy, 
the Son of God. And let's do Matthew 1, 20, uh, 20, because they go together. In Luke, it's the angel speaking to Mary. In Matthew, it's the same angel appearing in a dream to Joseph. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife. Let me pause there. The reason he was afraid is he, he was engaged to Mary and she's found out to be what? He knew he wasn't the father. He never heard of a virgin birth before this. So we're told in the text, he was going to put her, he was going to cancel the wedding plans and do it very, and try not to embarrass her and everything. And so the angel appears and says, no, 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 that's not what happened, Joseph. Don't be afraid to take Mary to your wife. Something wonderful has happened. She's conceived in her, what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's fruitless to ask, how did that happen? We don't know. We don't know. Uh, pardon me? The power of God. That's right. But we don't know the mechanism. It's just, we just know it's a fact. We just know it's a fact. So that then Jesus then received his human nature from Mary, his mother. Joseph was his stepfather. And like I said, you either believe this or you don't. This is a miracle, but it's said twice in the Bible. And uh, all Christians believe it. And it's been an orthodox teaching all throughout the centuries. It's never been historically denied except by perhaps more liberal Christians who don't want to believe all the Bible. Uh, so this is the virgin conception. By the way, let me say a couple of things here about Mary, because I don't have any other place to do this. Uh, we Lutherans are right in between Roman Catholics and Protestants when it comes to Mary. Uh, we don't adore Mary the way the Roman Catholic Church does. And we can get into semantics and all those things about praying to Mary and, and things like that. Uh, we don't pray to Mary. We don't worship Mary. We don't adore Mary. On the other hand, in contrast to Protestants, we don't ignore her either. How often do you hear Protestants talking about Mary? Not very often, if we're going to be honest. Okay. But Lutherans are right in between because we do honor Mary because that's what she says. Part of the liturgy came in through Luke's gospel, the Magnificat, where Mary sings this beautiful uh, hymn after she is told that she's going to be the woman to give birth to the Savior of the world. Remember Genesis 3.15, the seed of the Seed, she's it. She's the seed of the. You know, we'll have the seed of the woman, and so uh, uh, Mary says there. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Yeah, and so we do honor uh, Mary uh, as the mother of our Lord Jesus, and and rightly so. But we don't worship her, pray to her, or adore her. Please. I just want to add what he mentioned yes. that we don't worship or yeah. the way the Catholic Jews Mary just to, again, come back to the first commandment that you mentioned. Yes, first commandment. That's why it's so important. Um, I, let me give you a real quick history lesson here. I, I, my, not my main point. I've got to watch my clock. How it came about, Mary's position in the Roman Catholic Church was uh, sort of during the Dark Ages. And I'm going to use just rough numbers for you so you get a handle on this. About 500 to 1,000. 500 to 1,000 was the Dark Ages in the Middle Ages in Europe. And lots of things that we Lutherans and other Protestants object to in the Roman Catholic Church developed in that 500-year period, approximately, 500 to 1,000. And one of them was Mary. And what happened was, is the gospel, kind of getting back to your point, Steve, the gospel was not really strongly pronounced. There was a lot of law in the church. Do this, don't do that, you're going to be judged. And what they did is they turned Jesus into a judge. Who's going to judge you on the last day, Steve? 
Jesus Christ is going to judge you. You better get your act together. Now, I'm being silly to make my point. Well, now, what happened is because they turned Jesus into a stern judge, they had to find a compassionate figure somewhere. And where did they go? His mother. And so Mary, early on, became a go-between. We go to Mary, who'll go to her son, who'll go to the father. And it's because they had a distorted view of Jesus. Instead of a compassionate, loving Savior, they turned him into a stern judge. Okay. Now, what I wanted to mention, however, and I need to move on. If you ever hear the phrase immaculate conception, that does not refer to, to Mary and Jesus, believe it or not. Believe it or not. It refers to Mary's conception. Okay. And the reason they do that, and they shouldn't, because it's not in the Bible, in order to try to explain how Jesus could be sinless, they said Mary was sinless. Well, but that doesn't help at all, because for Mary to be sinless, her mother would have to be sinless. Did you see that? So that really doesn't answer anything. But if you hear the phrase immaculate conception in Roman Catholic theology, that doesn't refer to the birth of Jesus. It refers to the conception birth of Mary. And so there's some differences in there. Plus, that also takes you back to 10, 9, yeah. That would make her a 10. That's right. That would make her a 10. And so she would be the only one that she's not mentioned. And she wouldn't need a Savior, would she? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so the virgin birth and conception. You either believe it or you don't. Luke 2, 7, she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Now, that is the historical description of what happened at Christmas. But the reason we have John 1, 14 following up, John 1, 14 is an explanation of Luke 2.7. Okay? So John explains Luke 2.7 by saying the Word was made flesh. That's the same thing as Mary brought forth her firstborn son, and he dwelled among us and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Luke describes the actual historical event. John is telling you what this is all about. This is God laying in the manger in human form. Yes, I see a hand over here. Please. Yeah, that was, see, that was the point that I was making. I mean, because, you know, about uh, uh, not being in the wintertime because the end was full. Yeah. And it wouldn't be full in the wintertime. Yeah. Well, I don't want to get into a bait with that necessarily because scholars may may vary about that and all those things. I know about the, sh- the, the shepherds watching their flocks by night and things like that. The date of Christmas is really insignificant. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, 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 I see, because I, I tried to, you know, I, I'm a certain, certain, yeah. certain. I never could come up why they made it in December. Well, it's a long, I, don't, I can't do it now because it takes too much time away from what I want to do, but I'd be able to do that one-on-one privately if you'd like. Okay. But it was a historical development and it had a long history. Yes. The uh, the sin part, the sinless and the women part. Uh, of uh, Mary, now you're talking yes. about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it because the original sin actually entered through Adam, not Eve? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. We, we did talk about original sin, which you'll hear more. Adam is always given the blame for bringing sin in the world, not Eve. However, Eve was also implicated and part of it, and so she also had original sin, as Adam did, even though Adam is blamed for it. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. Are you saying, let me put it this way, original sin is propagated both by the male and the female, not just one. Both propagate original sin. Yes, yeah. uh, but the sin actually go to the, uh, through the male, Adam. Therefore, the Jesus needs to be born through 
No, because we would say that Mary had original sin too. Mary had original sin and she had actual sin. So what explains, here's here's what you need to focus on. The, The sinlessness of Jesus is not to be found in Mary. The sinlessness of Jesus is to be found in how he was conceived in Mary by the, by the Holy Spirit. That's the source of his sinlessness, not, not, the, not the nature of Mary, but the Holy Spirit conceiving him. Does that help a little bit? Yeah. Otherwise, we'd have to deny that Mary had original sin, and she had original sin, as we all do. Yes, please. Um, where in the Bible does it talk about Mary being blessed or... It's in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, I believe it is. Yeah, the Magnificat. Luke, Luke chapter 1. It's wonderful. And it's even made it into the... Uh, for example, if you were to come to a, a Wednesday night Vesper service, we, we, we sing, we chant the Magnificat. We did it last night. And it's from Mary. Yeah. From, all, from, this, genera- from this day forward, all generations will call me blessed. Steve, then we need to move on. That's nothing. Uh, why they say that Adam brought us into one because Jesus, God came to him. And he really initiated it. Yeah, well, it's what we said. Adam was the head. Yeah. The buck stopped with Adam. And he was standing right next to Eve when she was doing all right. this. And yeah, because God came to him and he had, he's the one who initiated the lie. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, so uh, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's this chart right here. This is what happened at Christmas. And before he became a full man, he was a little baby, laying in a manger, and that was our God. Laying in a manger. That's what Christmas is all about. Okay, so from this we learn, Christ, true God, was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary as a true man. He was born of the Virgin Mary as a true man, but without sin. Jesus Christ is a real man. He has a human body and a soul. He ate, drank, slept. The Bible calls him the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5. Now, number seven is very important. Why? Why did God do this? And what we're going to find out is in these two Bible passages, real simple. Isaiah 9, 6, which is often read at the, around Christmas. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And I want you to circle or highlight the two prepositions, or pronouns, us. Why did he do this? For us. For us. Which we'll see in Luke 2.11, which is part of the Christmas story. And we alluded to the shepherds watching their flocks by night. These are the, this is the angel talking to the shepherds. And what did he say? Unto you. And you might want to highlight a circular word, you. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, what? A Savior. So why does God do this? Why does God come into the world as a human being? To be our Savior. Because we can't save ourselves. We're in deep trouble. So God enters into human history, as we're going to see tonight and next week. He comes into human history, and He does for us what we can't do for ourselves, and becomes our Savior. So from this we learn, Christ God's only Son became man for us, that He might be our Savior. This is the Nicene Creed, where it says, Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate. That means to be made flesh. Incarnate comes from a Latin word. I'm going, to, I'm going to ruin the word for you now. You can get chili or you can get chili con carne. Okay, meat. Incarnate. He was enfleshed. God became man. Okay. Okay, turn the page, please. Well, who, since his coming into our flesh, is this man, Jesus Christ? Matthew 16, 13 and 16. Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say... The Son of Man is. Oh boy, isn't that question still asked today? Who is Jesus? If you want to get a real good debate going, just ask that in a coffee shop someplace or at work and see how that goes. Simon Peter replied, You are the 
Christ. Now I see you know the word Christ, don't you? Christ and Messiah are the same thing. You are the anointed one. You are the chosen one. Why? The son of the living God. Okay, so he's God in human form. Now it says here, and I'm going to give you an illustration. Jesus Christ is God and man in one person, the God-man. Now let me show you this. I have to slow down. This is so important that you understand who Jesus is. Now watch, the language is very important. There is only one person called Jesus. There aren't two Jesuses. There's only one person called Jesus. Ah, but this is where he's different. He has two natures. You and I have one nature. We are human. Okay, well, one person, but he has two natures. Two natures. What are those two natures? He is human, which is a slam dunk. We know that, right? He's human. And here comes the controversial part. He's also divine or God. Now let me explain this a little bit to you because there's been a lot of false teachings on this point about how these two natures relate to the one person. And there's two heresies, false teachings, we want to stay away from. One false teaching is to blend the two natures together, to blend the divine and the human together. Let me give you an illustration of what it doesn't mean. Let's pretend that the, um, uh, let me use white and black paint. Let's pretend the black paint uh, pertains to his divine nature. Okay? And the white paint pertains to his human nature. Okay? Now this has nothing to do with sin or anything like this. Black, uh, the black is the divine nature, white is the human nature. Okay? This would be a wrong understanding of the person of Jesus. We mix the black paint and the white paint together, and what color do we get? That's not what we're talking about. We're not mixing the divine and human natures together so that we get a hybrid. That's not, that, would be, that would not be scriptural. The divine nature is always the divine nature, and the human nature is always the human nature. Now, one simple reason for those who have been with me, you know, God can't change, right? But if we mixed Him with something, He'd be what? Changed into something different. no. We keep the human and the divine very distinct. Well, what's the second heresy that's been taught throughout history? Well, the second heresy, in contrast to mixing the two natures together, the second heresy keeps the two natures together, but not in a meaningful way. It'd be like two boards glued together. Okay. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, with two boards glued together, there's no communion between the two natures, is there? Okay. Whereas, here's the real picture. There is a communication between the divine and the human in the one person, Jesus. Let's pretend this is the human nature of Jesus, and this is the divine nature of Jesus. Rather than just being like two boards put together that have nothing to do with each other, now watch why I do this. The divine nature permeates the human nature. You understand by permeates? Okay. But permeates the human nature in such a way that the human and the divine are still what? Distinct. Distinct. Okay. Okay. Now, let me give you an illustration of this. And then uh, we'll, we'll do a, a couple other things. This is Jesus. You didn't recognize him. I want you to pretend with me on what I've already told you. This orange plastic casing 
is the human nature of Jesus, meaning his physical and his soul, just like any normal human being except for sin. Then I want you to pretend with me that the electricity would represent his divine nature. Okay? And I'm going to be using this illustration tonight and later tonight and next week too, so you're going to hear it several times. The moment Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, that little fetus, you want to call it that, the moment he's conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, from that split second, he's God and man in one person. Okay? Then he's born and he grows up and everything. Okay, Now this is what we're going to watch. He's walking around with the disciples, right? And he looks like just what? An ordinary man, right? He has to eat and sleep. He gets hungry, so forth and so on. Later on, they're going to crucify him. Oh, but every once in a while, he does something a little bit different, doesn't he? Raises the dead. Walks on water, right? Feeds thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. And a couple of weeks ago, some of you heard or you may know the story, where he's transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration between Peter, James, and John. And he, he glowed so bright they couldn't even look at him. Okay. This is what I'm going to show you tonight and next week. He's always God in human form. But when he was walking around on this earth, and I'll say this to, right now and I'll say it many times so you'll get it. He did not always or fully use his power as God. When he was walking around, he did not always or fully Use his powers, God. It just happened ever once in a while, and he never used it fully. What we're going to learn next week, after he's raised from the dead, ascends into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, as a man, he always and fully uses his power as God. That's what we're going to be looking at. So these are the two natures of Christ. He is a human being just like us, except for sin. But he's also God in human form. That's the teachings of the Bible. Okay, now let's see how this works itself out. The Gospels record the life of Christ, his childhood, ministry of miracles, of love and mercy. 33 years of joyful obedience to the Heavenly Father. That's a good educated guess, by the way. How do we know that? Well, we're told specifically in Luke's Gospel that Jesus was around 30 when he started his ministry. Well, that's a starting point for us, isn't it? And then when you put together Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the whole story, okay, most scholars believe, there's some exceptions, most scholars believe he had about a three-year ministry. So if he started around 30, that means he was crucified around 33. 33 years of joyful obedience to his heavenly Father. How Would you highlight this? How does the perfect life of Christ profit us? Jesus had no sin. That's very important. How could he be our Savior if he had sin? He had to be sinless. Now, there's two things that I'm going to teach you tonight with the rest of the time I have tonight. Jesus did two things for you. The first thing we're going to talk about right now is he did what you have not been able to do. Keep the Ten Commandments the way you're supposed to. You haven't kept the Ten Commandments the way you're supposed to, nor have I. Nor is anybody. Jesus did. And here's the good news. He did it for you as your substitute. And when you believe in him, you get credit for what he did. So let's look up a couple of passages that show this. First of all, after question nine, 
Would you simply write down these passages, and I'm not going to look it up just to save time. I'm just a little bit behind time. So write them down, and uh, you can look them up on your own, or we'll do it again next week. Hebrews 4.15, Hebrews 4.15, that's New Testament, says he didn't have any sin at all. And also, 2 Corinthians, C-O-R, 5.21, will also tell you he had no sin. So Jesus Christ had no sin. Now, let's get to the Bible passage we do have there under number 9. Galatians, this is the Apostle Paul, writing to a group of churches which today would be in central Turkey. It's called Galatia because that was the name of the Roman province. Okay, it says, when the time had fully come, oh my goodness, for those who have been with me, does that sound like it goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and the seed of the woman and the promises given throughout the Old Testament, the Savior's coming, the Savior's coming, the Savior's... Christmas is when the fullness of time had come. When He was supposed to be born, right? God sent forth His Son, up here, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. There's Mary. Now watch this. Born under the law. Now what does that mean? To be born under the law meant as a human being, as a human being, God expected this man, Jesus, to do what He expects of you and me, and that is to keep His law. His law. But the difference is He did it. Okay? He was born under the law to what? Redeem those to, for, uh, to save those who were also under the law, right? Okay. Why did he do that? So that we might receive what? Ad- well, okay, or his adoption as sons. And here it means males and females. So you and I, if we believe in Jesus, we get credit for his keeping the Ten Commandments and we become adopted as sons into the family of God. Now, Romans 5.19 really says it very clearly, doesn't it? This is Paul. By the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now, here's the idea of a a substitute. Uh, Let me give you an illustration, then we'll read from this we learned. Let's pretend that we went to a Seahawks game. See see Sean Alexander's coming back? Yeah. We went to a Seahawks game, and you know, sometimes they have a contest at halftime, passing and kicking. Well, I'm going to embellish that just a little bit, and I know this would never happen. Just play along with me. But let's say it's halftime, and you're going to participate in a halftime contest. And here's the deal, okay? If you can kick a field goal, they're going to give you $10,000 and a free trip to Disneyland for your whole family. Okay, Right? So you go down on the field, and you're down there, and you're going to get three tries. Okay, three tries. We'll see what we do. And they line it up, and then you start looking at the lines on the field. You realize, this is a 60-yard field goal attempt. Okay. So you get three shots. Okay. You get three shots. Okay. And, of course, you, you can't make a 60-yard field goal. So you're all discouraged. Now, what I want you to see is, is God keep, says, keep the law house. Perfectly. Well, okay, I'll try. Can't do it though, can you? So you, you walk off the field and think, well, there goes the 10000 bucks and the trip to Disneyland. And then all of a sudden over here you see some of the referees talking to somebody. And just as you get to the sidelines, say, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This gentleman here has volunteered to take your place. Yeah. And we've agreed. If he can make this 60-yard field goal, we'll give you the $10,000 and you can go to Disneyland. Okay, all right. Right, so they line up that 60-yarder, this guy taking your place, and you can't believe it. Before it even gets over, 
the goalpost. You know it's going over. And what are you doing? <laughs> You're jumping up and down. Now, here's my point. That man was your substitute. And you're going to get 10000 bucks, and your whole family's going to go to Disneyland, not because of what you did, because of what he did for you. That's what we mean about Jesus keeping the law. You're going to get into heaven. I'm going to get into heaven, not because of how good you and I have kept the Ten Commandments, but how good Jesus did, and we trust in him, and he shares that with us. So let's see what we learn from this we learn then. From this we learn, by his perfect life, Christ fulfilled the law for us. Now it can no longer condemn us. In other words, when we feel guilty, when we feel guilty, we say, we confess our sins, of course. We don't excuse it. But we say, well, wait a minute. I know I haven't done this, but my dear Lord Jesus did it for me. Right? Therefore, I can find peace and contentment. Because Christ is man, he could take our what? Our place. See, if, if somebody's going to take our place, it has to be a human being. couldn't be an animal, right? That was what was wrong with the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. And the book of Hebrews tells you that. Animals could never take our place. They were only symbols of the coming of the seed of the woman who would take our place. All those animal sacrifices pictured the coming of Jesus. And some of you know this passage. When Jesus came to be baptized by John, John said, Behold, the Lamb of God! The Lamb of God that all these other lambs and goats were just pointing to till he got here. That's why there's no more sacrifices of lambs and goats. Because the real thing came and sacrificed himself, which we're going to get to. Okay, so he's a man. He could take our place under the law. And because he's God, what he does can be for everybody. Now, that's his active obedience. This is very important. I've got to talk just a little bit quicker, which I promised to do. Uh, here's the active obedience sheet. You want to look at that one? Okay, God wants us to keep the law perfectly in our thoughts, desires, words, and deeds, right? But our old sinful nature, uh, it doesn't work. We're condemned. Nobody keeps the law perfectly, right? But then look at the but. But Jesus kept the Lord perfectly in our place, our substitute. And His holy thoughts, His holy desires, His holy words, His holy deeds have been given credit to us. So that now, through faith in Him... We are holy. Now, here's how this works. Now, I've got to move on because I'm running out of time. I have not kept the Ten Commandments perfectly in actuality. But before God, I have kept every Ten Commandment perfectly. How could you say that? Because I trust in Jesus Christ and His perfect keeping of the Ten Commandments is now mine. Just like that field goal kicker. Okay, that's his active obedience. We call it his active obedience for two reasons. One, because he went around actively loving God and his neighbor as himself. And secondly, we call it active into the next point now in contrast to his passive obedience. Well, let's look at that number, uh, number 10. During his life on earth, Jesus endured poverty, misunderstanding, hatred, and persecution. Finally, his enemies arrested him, innocently condemned him. And nailed him to a cross. As the Apostles' Creed puts it, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. How does Christ's suffering and death benefit us? Well, you're going to see the idea again of substitute. For example, Isaiah 53, 5, which prophesied what Jesus would do. He was wounded for what? You might want to highlight that. Our transgressions, not his. He was bruised for what? Highlight that. Our iniquities, not his. 
Upon him was the chastisement that made, circle or highlight, us whole. And with his stripes, highlight, we are healed. Do you hear the idea of substitute again? Now look at 2 Corinthians 5.21, the great apostle Paul writing to his second letter to the church in Corinth, Greece. God made him who did not know sin. That means Jesus was sinless, right? He didn't know any sin. To be sin for us. Now, this is a hard concept, and I don't know, uh, we can't look up a bunch more passages right now, so if this is difficult, just hang in there, and we'll try to do more in the future. But when it says He was made sin for us, that means Jesus Christ was punished by God for adultery, for premarital sex, for pornography, for lying, for stealing, for jealousy, for hatred, for murder, for coveting, Every sin that you have in your life and you can think of, He was made that and punished by God. That's what that means. The sinless Jesus, right, was made sin for us. Now, why did He do that? That's the next line. To, or in order to what? Make us God's righteousness in Him. In other words, through faith in Jesus Christ, our debt to God has been canceled. Our debt to God has been canceled. Write down uh, Romans 8.1, and I'll just quote it to save time. Romans 8.1, and some of you know it already. Romans 8.1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're off the hook. Because Jesus was put on the hook for you. You and I deserve to be punished by God for our sins. Jesus, the sinless one, who shouldn't have been punished at all, took our place and canceled our debt to God. So then, let's go to our next Bible passage, Second uh, Timothy 1.10. Our Savior Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Now, let's get this together. What brought death into the world? Sin. Exactly. Now, listen carefully. That means where there's forgiveness of sins, death has been overcome. That's why in the New Testament, sin and death go together, and forgiveness of sins and life go together. If you have forgiveness of sins, you have everything from God, including life. Now, we're back to Genesis, aren't we? Genesis 3.15, He shall bruise the devil's head. We talked about that. And 1 John 3.8 explains that. The Son of God appeared for the very purpose of what? Yeah, or let me paraphrase it. Jesus came into the world to undo the horrible mess that began in the Garden of Eden. And He succeeded in doing that. Okay, now I want to show you a really awesome, neat passage. Um, couple of them, and uh, we're doing fine for time here. But let's look up, would you write down John 18.1? Let's look it up together, and you'll start seeing some points I'll be making. Okay, here's Jesus. Okay, verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. Let's pause here, in case you don't know. This, what took place right before this is the Passover, and he gave the Lord's Supper. He instituted the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of the altar. We call it the Eucharist. Okay? And this is also going to be the night Judas betrays him. 
On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. So I want you to get that in your mind. It's dark, late at night. Most people are asleep. Here comes this mob with soldiers and weapons and lanterns, right? Jesus, now watch, knowing all that was going to happen to him. You understand what I'm saying, don't you? Went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. You get that in your mind? Why did they fall to the ground? Who's, yeah? He made them. Just speaking, remember God's word. If you know your Bible, God's word is powerful. How did he create the whole universe? By his word. Jesus says, I am he. Now he didn't have to do this. But he exercised his power. Now, why would he do that? I'm going to show you. By the way, John's the only one that tells us this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us this part. John does. Now watch. You'll get my point. Okay, so they fall to the ground, right? Again, he asked them, who is it you want? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you I'm he. Now what doesn't happen? Doesn't do this, does he? Nope. Doesn't use his divine power now. I told you I'm he, Jesus said. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This is the kind of stuff that brings tears to your eyes. He's not even thinking about himself, is he? Who's he thinking about? His disciples. Let these men go. This happened so the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who drew a, had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, and I'm going to paraphrase for you. Peter, didn't you just see what I did? Why are you drawing your puny little sword? I'm paraphrasing, okay? He says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now watch how I go, because you're going to see the point as I develop this. If Jesus had done this, they couldn't have taken him. But he refrains from doing that. Why? He says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? You see, he becomes passive. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commanders and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas. And it goes on from there to Pontius Pilate. And my point is, they couldn't do any of that to Jesus unless he let them. You never, ever want to think of Jesus Christ as a helpless pawn or a wimp. He is God in human form. As a matter of fact, this is where the love of Jesus Christ is. If Jesus was helpless and had no choice here, where's the love? No, the love is to be found in this. He's the Son of God. He's God in human form. You know, what he could have done to these people? But he lets this happen. Why? Because the Father sent him to do this. So love for the Father and love for us. So that we might have a safe. This is where the love of Jesus Christ would be found. And think about later, we'll see this when they're spitting on him. You know? He had the very power of God. And he chose not to use it. 
As a matter of fact, I want to look up a lesson now, and then we'll uh, go on to the next page in just a minute. Would you write this down? We'll look it up, and you'll see the point. Mark 15, 1 to 41. Very early in the morning, the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Verse 9, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Knowing it was out of envy, the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Verse 12, What shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? Pilate asked him. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate? But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. I'm going to pause real quickly here. See if you can get this. Some of you have heard me say this before. Ready? You and I are Barabbas. We're the guilty ones. And yet, just as Barabbas went free because Jesus took his place... We go free because Jesus took our place on the cross. Verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Now, if you were Jesus, would you be thinking maybe about using your awesome power as God and say enough is enough? 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Do you understand why? This was an ancient painkiller. No painkiller. I can take, he has to feel the full weight of our sin. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. That's nine o'clock in the morning. The written notice of the charge against him the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. Oh, but you know what? He could have. I mean, think about it. Think how spectacular they would pop right off that cross and float ten feet above the air and say, Yeah, look at this. But then we'd have no Savior. So he doesn't do that. 31, in the same way the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves, he saved others, they said. But he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. Verse 33, at the sixth hour, that's noon, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, that's three in the afternoon. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. It's Aramaic, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in lesson 14, I will show you, that's when he was experiencing hell. 
That's when he was being punished for our sins. 35, when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. 36, one man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. Verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And if you don't know what that means, we'll talk about later. We now have access to God. I'll explain that later. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and Joses, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem, were also there. Now, the main point of reading all that, I wanted you to hear that anew, remembering that he could have stopped at any time he wanted to. All he had to do was that. But he didn't. So that you and I would have a Savior. And that's the love of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's uh, do it from this we learn. Then we'll go to number 11 and start wrapping some things up. From this we learn, Christ suffered and died as our substitute, thereby saving us from sin, its guilt, its punishment, its slavery, death, which is now entrance to eternal life, which we'll talk about in Lesson 14, and the devil, who can no longer successfully accuse us, and whose temptations we can resist, we'll see in Lesson 8 and Lesson 10, and overcome in the strength of faith, because Christ is man, he could suffer and die for us, because he's God. His blood, precious beyond all words, could fully redeem us. We don't have time to look at it tonight. We'll do it in, in future lessons. But it, it, is, it is biblically correct to say that God died for us and that God shed His blood for us. I'll show you the, the exact passages in the future because who is Jesus? He's God in human form. Now, number 11, then we'll start wrapping things up. Who receives this benefit of what Jesus did? And sadly, not everybody. Jesus did this for everybody, but only those who believe in Him benefit from what he did, as I'll show you. So here we go. First of all, 2 Corinthians 5.15, the great apostle Paul, he died for what? Oh, now the reason that's important, I don't know if anybody here can relate to this or not, there are some Protestants, not all, some who are heavily influenced by John Calvin, who believe that Jesus didn't die for everybody. Anybody ever hear that before? Okay. Well, who did he die for? Only those who are going to be saved. That's John Calvin. And there are some uh, Protestant Christians that believe that. That's why this is so important. And the reason it's important you know he died for all is two reasons. Number one, that's what the Bible says. And number two, now think about this. If he didn't die for everyone, how do you know he died for you? Other than hoping, you don't know, do you? But if he died for everybody, what do you know? He died for me. So your name doesn't even have to be in the Bible. Your name is found in all. So he died for everybody. No exceptions. 1 John 2, 2. Great Apostle John, what does he say? He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice. Atoning means the payment. For what? Our sins. And not only ours, but all the world's. Now, who's the ours? We Christian, we believers. And he's saying, he didn't do this just for we Christian, us believers. He did it for the whole world. 2 Peter 2.1, the great apostle Peter say, they, those who do not believe in Jesus, okay, that's, what, that's the context, those who do not believe in Jesus, deny the Lord that what? Bought them. Now, we'll see that in, in future lessons too. What Jesus did on the cross, he paid the price to bring us back to 
God. That's what he means by bought. You and I have been bought and paid for. Peter says, not with gold and silver, but with his holy precious blood. So we've been bought and paid for. And he's saying, those who don't believe in him, right, deny the very Lord that bought them, that died for him, right, them. And bring on them themselves swift destruction. And finally, Acts 16, 31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. So faith. So let me read from this. We learn that. Let me give you an illustration, and then um, start wrapping things up. From this we learn, Christ redeemed all mankind. Not one person is accepted. B, only, however, the person who receives the benefit of this redemption, who by faith accepts Christ has his very own Savior. For example, faith lays hold of what Christ earned for all and says, quote, He loved me and gave himself for me. That's the great apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20. Now let me use a real simple illustration that will wrap things up. Pretend with me that I have $10,000 in the bank. <laughs> you got to really pretend on that one. Um, anyway, pretend that you have $10,000 in the bank, and I have a check here for $10,000. And it's a legitimate check. Everything's legitimate. My name's on it. And your name is on it. And I'm going to offer it to you. This is a gift from me to you. Okay, $10,000 check. Now, in this illustration, if you don't receive this check, and maybe you think, now, Pastor Lastman, First of all, I don't even know if you have $10,000. Secondly, I think you're just trying to make fun of me or something. Whatever you want to do. My point is, if you don't receive the check, it doesn't do you any good, does it? Even though it's legitimate. I have the $10,000. My name's on the check. Your name's on it. Please accept it. No, uh-uh, no. You're making a fool of me or doing something. So even though it's all objectively real, you're not going to benefit. Ah, But if you say, I don't know why you want to do this, but thank you very much, and you receive the check, now you're going to benefit from my $10,000 offer, right? That's all faith in Jesus is. Because what Jesus did is for everybody. Now listen very carefully, and we'll be going over this in future lessons too, especially lesson nine. This is all a promise from God. God's promise to us, our sins have been paid for. God's promise that because of Jesus Christ, our sins are Forgiven. We have eternal life. Peace with you. Those are all promises, right? The only way you can receive a promise is by faith, believing it. And the silly illustration I often give is that if I go to somebody and I say, Fred, I'm going to come to your house Sunday afternoon, okay? And I, you know how much I like coffee and some good old coffee cake or something like that. You say, okay, fine. I'll be there at 2.30. Okay. Now, if I show up and they're not prepared for me, they obviously didn't what? They didn't believe me, did they? Because they're not ready. Or if I go there and they're already, they believe me. Because if I say I'm going to be there at 2.30, what can they do? They either believe me or they don't believe. It's the same with God. It's not complicated. We're going to talk a lot about faith. If you believe what God promises in Jesus Christ, it's yours. If you don't believe it, it's not yours. Even though it's there for you, just like the $10,000 in the bank. This concludes our lesson for this week. I encourage you to fill out your workbook, your review, on page 29. Next lesson is Lesson 7, entitled Jesus Christ, Part 2. We'll discuss His resurrection from the dead, His ascension into heaven, and His sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now let's conclude with prayer. 
Dear Father, again, we thank you for this time with your word. We pray you'll bless us, not only giving us understanding, but faith to accept what you have given. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.